You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Yes, uh, just gone uh, 8.07 Central African Time. Your favorite program, uh, Medical Files, are keeping you company uh, this evening. And Alhamdulillah, as we know, we get uh, try and get you the best and the best in the fields uh, on uh, the show. And Alhamdulillah, uh, this evening, uh, we have uh, got uh, Dr. Ridwan Umar. A pediatrician who's a well-known and alhamdulillah who really, you know, he resonates positively on this platform. And uh, yes, uh, we get our uh, technician, uh, Lucalo, trying to get hold of him. And uh, Dr. Ridwan, are you listening? If you're listening to us, are we trying to get hold uh, of you? And it says the number is busy. But as soon as we get you online, inshallah, we will engage you. And uh, this uh, evening, alhamdulillah, topic is uh, trauma and the trauma that, you know, parents undergo uh, especially those, uh, I was talking to uh, doctors, you know, on, on, on the chat and saying uh, the topic should be, you know, if parents have a twin and uh, the trauma of losing one of the child from the, uh, what they go through. And uh, so many different scenarios people go through life and life is all about tests. And, you know, the greater the opposition, uh, the greater the flight and the greater the test, the greater the sawab. And if, you know, if you have in the house of Islam uh, the quality of sabr, Sabr and shukr, they say, are wonderful things. So, alhamdulillah, you know, when we have that and we have these challenges in life and you do notice uh, that uh, we do have to have uh, that, uh, uh, you know, type of quality that can get us through this uh, scenario of life. But alhamdulillah, when, uh, you know, uh, there's something that I like to talk about. Our doctor is always his disposition. He's uh, really a refined uh, gentleman, a a refined Muslim, someone with a lovely countenance, lovely smile on him. Uh, I, I never, ever heard a word out of season. He's got a word in, in season, and Allah bless him for that. And I tell you, people, when you look at all these uh, uh, types of different scenarios coming through, and uh, when we get uh, the opportunity of meeting people that are challenged, and, uh, you know, for many, uh, for, for, for many children, for many parents, they have this uh, uh, different types of procedure. They can be, uh, you know, they have these traumatic uh, uh, experiences and so forth. But all this, alhamdulillah, if you're in the house of Islam, we take it with a smile, and alhamdulillah, our deen actually prepares us for that. And if we have a pediatrician like uh, Dr. Ridwan Umar in the fraternity, and he deals with uh, many, many non-Muslims, and uh, by his mannerism, he you know, is an excellent, excellent Muslim to do dawah. There's he. I can see him full of smiles, giving me a big thumbs up, and I'm giving him a, a big thumbs up, our very own uh, Dr. Ridwan Umar, a pediatrician, Extraordinary uh, Dr. Ridwan Umar. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And uh, Jazakallah khair for joining us uh, this evening on the platform of Marcus Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. How are you doing, Doctor? Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, brother Safat and to listeners. Alhamdulillah, I am well. And how are you? Alhamdulillah, Doctor, already, uh, you know, when uh, someone that I'm uh, very close to that I really embrace and celebrate, I even get uh, doubly excited. And Alhamdulillah, to have you to document, uh, you know, uh, the trauma that people go through, and especially this topic of uh, parents, you know, when they uh, lose the child and, you know, uh, going through a whole period, nine months, expecting, you know, everything to be uh, smooth sailing, and suddenly there's a mishap. 
at the final moment. What happens, doctor? Take us through that scenario. You know, there you are, the pediatrician. Uh, you know, you, you you're waiting, and you know maybe you're talking to them, and uh, the parents come to you. What happens? You know, when the when, when the child uh, is you know they have two uh, they have a twin and one goes a uh, doctor. What happens there? I begin by praising Almighty Allah and ask Him to forgive us and protect us. And I send abundant salam on our beloved Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. I think this is a very sensitive topic, and it's something that we are often faced with, you know, in life. Um, in fact, all of us will encounter the loss of a loved one at some point in our life, whether it is our parent, our spouse, our sibling or our child. And whatever the loss is, I think the first and the most important thing is, as Muslims, you know, Allah has given us this gift of Iman, and therefore we know that this is a test from Allah, because Allah promises to test us, uh, you know, with loss of life, loss of wealth, loss of property, with fear, with anxiety. So we have that as a great source of consolation, because we know there is a great reward for it. Sometimes I feel very sorry for the non-Muslim people because they also go through these tests. But they don't have that iman, which makes a very big difference when we are in a situation like this. And I think, you know, that the loss of anyone is painful, but the loss of a child and those listeners out there who are with us on the radio station that have lost a child will be able to testify that it's probably the most painful test that any, any parent can be put through. It's it's extremely difficult, you know, and unfortunately, part of my job requires that at some point, I have to be the bearer of bad news. And, you know, even for me, it's, it's extremely difficult. It's very emotional. Even as the doctor, you know, we also get caught up in the emotion of, of the loss of life and uh, knowing that, 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 that now we have to go and confront the parents who are anxiously awaiting news, and obviously they are awaiting some form of good news or some form of hopeful news. And, you know, just the thought that I have to go and break this devastating news to them, which no amount of words will be, bring any comfort or solace, is, is very daunting, you know. And, uh, it's, I would, you know, I love my job, but it's the only part of my job that I don't enjoy or don't, don't, don't look forward to at all. But alhamdulillah, you know, it doesn't happen often. It's a, it's a rare, seldom occasion, but we are faced with it. And, you know, we have, to, we have to be brave and be strong for the parents, for the family that sometimes are there as well. I think, you know, if anybody loses a child, it depends on the circumstances under which this child was lost. You know, if it happens suddenly, then obviously it becomes even more difficult to accept because, First, you have to go through the process of the shock and the disbelief, you know, of such devastating news. If the child was sick, it's very important for us as healthcare providers, be it the doctors, the nurses, the social workers, the psychologists, the whole healthcare team, to start preparing the patients or the parents and their families for what might happen based on what knowledge we have and based on the science. So, you know, in my own personal experience, there are lots of times when we come across death, which is inevitable, which means there's nothing we can do anymore to save the life of this child. 
And, uh, you know, it's very important from my own personal experience when, when we think that we've reached that point to start counseling the parents so that if and when this um, ultimate event does occur, then we are able to, you know, to, to break the news in a manner that makes it a little more easier, not for the parents, but I think for us. Because for the parents, it's never easy news. Um, it's, 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 it's really, really difficult, you know, to, to be in that situation. And it's, it's very painful, even as a doctor, you know. I often, I often tear with my parents because what words do you have for a parent who is a child? There, there are no words. And like I said, our listeners out there who have been through this, they will know exactly what, what the feeling is. It's very difficult. Our iman makes it, our, our belief in Allah and our, 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 you know, our conviction in, in Allah and our hope for the reward that will come with it is, is the only thing that, that can give consolation in a situation like this. You know, there's the science and then there's our, our Islamic beliefs when we are confronted with any situation, whether it's medical or non-medical. Obviously, medicine guides us as to how to, how to approach a problem, how to diagnose a disease, how to treat it. And then it also gives us guidelines as to whether the patient is getting better or getting worse. So I think it's important as healthcare workers to to prepare the patient if we think that that the situation is going to to end up, um, you know, with death. It, it makes a little difference because when we do eventually tell them about it, even though a parent never gives up hope, and that's what I've learned in my experience. I think it makes it a little easier just for them to accept that news immediately. But obviously, the pain is not lessened at all. But it just makes acceptance a little easier versus a parent who's never been properly counseled and, and then is suddenly told that, you know, your baby has passed away. Um, I think the, the manner in which we break the news is also very important. Uh, you know, it shouldn't be rushed. You should always make sure that, you know, we are all seated together. The doctor must sit down. I always believe that the doctor should never be standing when you're breaking news like this because it might, uh, you know, confer the impression that I'm in a hurry and I have to go, you know. With news like this and a situation like this, we have to show the parents that sensitivity, that we also feel it as very important to be seated. The family must be seated, you know, to go through the whole sequence of events. That's what I personally do anyway. You know, I go through the whole sequence of events. So I don't immediately just tell the patient or the parents that your baby, and, and I don't use the name your baby, I always use the name of the of the deceased baby. For example, if it's Muhammad or whatever the name was, you know, that Muhammad's blood pressure started dropping at this time and his heart rate started dropping. So this is what we did for him. And then there was a slight improvement. And then at this time, you know, the oxygen level started dropping, so we increased the settings on the ventilator. And then Mohammed's color started changing, so we did this, so we did that. And then, you know, you eventually reach the point where we break the news and we say, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry, but at, at 19.30, Mohammed passed away, you know. So it's very important to always use the name of the patient. It's very important to use the word either died or passed away, uh, you know, because in a situation like that, sometimes, you know, if you use other words, like some people might say the patient expired or the patient has rested. And parents, what I've learned is that they don't understand what that means in that situation. 
You know, so what, what, you know, they might ask, so, doctor, what does that mean, rested or expired or whatever? So it's very important to be very direct with them and then to give them a little bit of time after that, immediately after that, to absorb that information. I found that helps a lot. So you just, you know, stop at that point when you give them the news that at 19.30, Muhammad died, you know, passed away. You give them a few minutes just for that information to soak in, to absorb. Because it's probably the most painful thing they'll ever hear in their life. And then you wait for their reaction and their response. And everybody's re- reaction is different, you know. Some might cry, some might scream, some might just sit on the floor. It's all different reactions. But I think it's important to give them that time. Then, you know, you see the parent after maybe five minutes or so, they'll they'll start talking and then they'll start asking more questions. What did you do? Or what happened, you know? And how did it happen? Or whatever the case may be. And uh, then, you know, after that, then they, they, we always I offer them the opportunity to hold their baby. You know, once they've come to terms with the news, and they might have wanted to make a phone call to their parent or to their sibling, then we also offer them that opportunity. Would you like us to call anybody on your behalf? And then after that, I always offer them, uh, would you like to hold your baby, which they always do. That's also a very emotional and sensitive time, you know, because you give them this little baby, you disconnect the baby from the ventilator or, or the drips or whatever nasogastric tube that was in, and you give them the little baby wrapped in a blanket like a baby who's asleep to hold, you know. And you give them all the time that they want and the privacy. And basically, it's it's, it's very difficult. But, you know, like I said, and Allah Tara promises to test all of us in this life. Um, it's something that we have to face at some point or the other, but to lose a child, I think, is, is one of the most difficult tests that anybody can ever go through. And we must always make dua that Allah Ta'ala protect our children and give them all long lives and good health. And don't put us through that kind of a test. That is very difficult. I tell you, Doctor, you're very graphic indeed. And, uh, you know, my hairs are all on end and there's a tear or two in my eye also. And, you know, going through the whole scenario, uh, you know, the, the emotion... Uh, you, you brought it alive, and you know, there's a, a masoom baby that has made parda from the dunya, and you're breaking the news, and the parents are asking you, what are some of the most difficult questions that you've been asked, uh, you know, when a child had made parda from the dunya, and you still remember, and you said, mm-hmm, how do I answer this, doctor? Yeah, I'm just trying to think. Uh, you know, usually what I do, if I think that death is inevitable, you know, I always... I'll get the parents on board quite early on and I'll even call them to keep updating them, you know, like if there's fluctuations or changes in the blood pressure or heart rate or oxygen levels. If I think that we're now, you know, nearing the end, then I usually call them and I tell them, look, I think it's now, even if it's two in the morning and the nurses give me a call and tell me, doctor, the patient's condition is deteriorating. So I, I, if, even if it means I have to go out there, I ask them to call the parents as well. And I tell the parents, look, I think it's time for you people to come here and and um, and, and spend time with the baby because uh, the baby is, is now critically ill and um, it's important for you people to be there. So usually they know that at that time there is uh, uh, there's, there's, there's not much medically we can do and it's time for them to be there. And I would always tell them it's now time, you know, to pray. So... You know, I think if you, if we prepare the parents for this eventuality, then it's not often you'll get asked a question that, that one cannot answer. But, uh, it, you know, I think, I think it's just uh, that 
the initial reaction is just they they so shocked and they so grieved that uh, they don't they don't they don't really ask something that 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 that, that we cannot answer because it's very important to 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 keep parents informed from the beginning especially if we're dealing with a sick or a very sick child and even like for example I'll give you a case where you know we get these rare chromosomal abnormalities like you get this syndrome which I've seen a few cases of it's called Edwards syndrome or trisomy 18 so like how you get down syndrome which is trisomy 21 but those children actually survive and they can live up to adulthood trisomy 20 uh, trisomy 18 called Edwards syndrome it, it's a condition of, I, I would say I see every three to four years, but unfortunately those babies don't survive. Uh, they live either a few hours or a few days. So that diagnosis is usually made by the gynae before the baby is born, and then the parents are counseled that, look, your baby has Edward syndrome, and uh, these are all the complications of it. There's, there's almost a zero chance of survival. Sometimes I'm called in to counsel the parents before the baby's born. It makes a very big difference um, if we if we counsel the parents from the beginning and if they need the pediatrician who's going to be looking after their baby for whatever time that Allah Ta'ala has preordained for that baby in this dunya. Uh, and then once the baby is born, it's important to take the parents through each step to keep them informed all the time. I think giving them that information all the time is very important. Now, we all know that doctors are very busy people and, uh, you know, lots of patients to see. But I think when we're dealing with cases like this, where we eventually go to face death, then I think it's very important to give these parents and this family a little bit of extra time so that, so that they, don't, they don't have any unrealistic and unusual expectations. The one thing I was taught, you know, all along in my training is never, ever take away the hope of a parent no matter how sick the child is. So I try to keep that in my practice all the time. You know, even though the situation might seem so desperate and, and might seem uh, so futile, you know, we, I always tell them for as long as there's life, there's hope. And uh, there is a God out there, you know, there is an Allah. And for as long as we have an Allah that we can turn to, then we have hope that, that things can get better. That's after informing them about it. So, you know, there's no particular question that stumps me that I can think of that comes to mind. And I think the reason for that is, is it's very important to keep the parents updated all the time when the when the babies are sick. So that they, they know exactly what is going through. So usually the kind of things I would hear is, well, doctor, thank you. You know, we, we could see you tried your best. We could see our baby wasn't getting better. We could see how hard you tried, you know. But I'm really they they generally would tend to respond in that way. Alhamdulillah, yes, sir, doctor. Then I'm also thinking about the couple, you know, the husband and wife there, and there's a baby that made parda from dunya, and you've done everything that you could. And at that moment, do you find the couple talk? Do you find them, you know, talking to each other and say, you know, you know, or the husband, you know, trying to console the wife? Uh, you know, during that moment, it must have been very difficult on both uh, partners. But I think. The mother, you know, the woman and uh, the, the mother of the child, uh, maybe she feels it more than anyone else in the room, Absolutely. doctor. Absolutely. The pain that you see in the mother's eyes when that news is broken is, is something that nobody would want to see. You know, it is, it is so much of pain. Um, it's indescribable, actually. 
You see the father in pain as well, but that mother's pain is different, and that is a reflection of the love that Allah Ta'ala has put in the heart of that mother for her child. And like we have in the topic, you know, where we said losing a twin. So if you lose one child, it's painful. If you lose two, I think the pain is still the same. Because the pain of a child cannot be measured, you know, or put on a scale and, and measured in any way. I think whether you lose one child or two children, the pain is still the same. And in my experience where we had cases where parents lost a twin, you know, the one twin, especially with premature babies, which are high-risk babies, and then obviously having a multiple pregnancy. So twin pregnancy is another risk factor. And there are cases where, you know, you lose one twin and the one twin survives. Uh, it's, still, it's still very, very painful for the parents because, you know, they, they had two babies and they were expecting two babies to go home. So the pain is still the same. And, you know, they have the one baby which they cling on to, but the memory of the other baby never goes away, never fades away. Even when their baby grows up, you know, and you see them bringing this, the surviving twin to the rooms for follow-ups or for check-ups, they would always talk about the one twin that uh, that, that didn't survive, you know, the prematurity or, or whatever it is. So, you know, but the, for, for our listeners out there, you know, I mean, the reward is great. And, and I think, you know, Jannah is almost guaranteed for the parent who has to, he has to go through such a test as long as they make sabr, you know, and persevere with salah, with, you know, as Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, you know, that he's with those who patiently persevere with uh, with prayer. Then I think I think the reward can only be Jannah for, for going through such a test. But it's difficult, Brother Shafat. I, I, I honestly uh, tell you, it's, it's something I, I really don't, don't like to be a part of. And if I could get somebody to do that on my behalf, I would gladly ask someone, you know, please go and tell the parent uh, this news. In fact, I, even when I'm with the nurses and I have to go and break the news, you know, I would always tell them how I wish I didn't have to do this. It's, it's, it's very difficult. And, you know, it, it actually, we are also human beings. And what makes it difficult, you know, sometimes it might happen at 7 in the morning. And then you got to go to do your ward rounds and you got to... So for us, even though we've been awake the whole night, you know, trying to resuscitate this baby keeping the parents up to date, then eventually breaking the bad news to them, being a part of that whole time when they have to accept it, hold their baby, you know. Um, and then you got to, like, switch over and then be this, this happy doctor. You know, everybody, when they see the doctor, they want to see the smiling face and the bubbly doctor and the happy doctor. It, it's difficult because we're also human beings, you know. We, in some, we feel the pain of the parents, you feel the loss of, of a human life. But you gotta you gotta put that aside and and and, uh, and and move on, you know, for your next patient who who's looking for a happy doctor, a smiling doctor. You know, nobody likes to see a grumpy doctor a doctor who's looking depressed or sad or anything. So, you know, and that happens, you know, where we just we've got to do this whole switch over. You know, from grieving, and then sometimes you'll be called to theater for a newborn baby. You know, and you see these elated and excited parents, and you congratulate them, and you know, you see the excitement and the joy. So, like five minutes ago, you were counseling parents who just lost a baby, and then the next five minutes, you are congratulating parents. So you see the change, and this is how we witness the power of Almighty Allah, and we see how you know where where we see His power and how the. We actually have very little control, or we have control over nothing. Because you see on the one end how he gives life, and on the other end how he takes life. 
And all we do is we are just observing. That is all we are, to be honest. Whether you are the doctor or the parent or the nurse or the porter in the hospital, really, we are just observers in this, in this whole process. I tell you, doctor, you bring it alive this evening. Absolutely brilliant information coming through you. I think the first time on a medical uh, show, I think we've got a doctor that really is bringing out the emotion and many other things. But doctor, really, I'm enjoying you. It's time for us to go to the marketplace. And inshallah, we will continue after that. You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Just one eight thirty four Central African time. Uh, medical files are keeping your company this evening in the company of a wonderful, beautiful doctor. His name is Dr. Ridwan Umar. He's a pediatrician, and Alhamdulillah, talking about uh, what a parent goes to, what parents go through when the trauma of losing a child, especially when having twins, and one of the twins survives and one leaves and makes barda from this dunya. And doctor was very graphic indeed, and how, you know, he calls the parents and how they counsel them and so forth and so forth. And then, then you know, doctor, I'm looking at a question on the screen, and Sister Amira says, Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Ridwan Umar, you are a big name in our family, and we really appreciate you this evening. You've got all of us crying. Doctor, is it true that there is a telepathy between twins when uh, they are together, when they grow together? But one twin is, uh, uh, when it makes parza from this dunya, the other twin is always uh, feeling the absence of the, uh, of the other twin that passed on. There is a vacuum, and you can see it in the eyes of the surviving twin. Doctor, how true is that? Amira, Jazakallah khair for that. Uh, your response? Alaikum salam, Amira, Jazakallah khair for your um, question and for your comments. May Allah reward you. Um, I think that's a good question. And it's actually making me scratch my head a little bit. I think there definitely is some connection between twins. And I'll tell you why. When we have twins that are born, especially when they're well newborn, I always insist that these babies are, you know, when those of us who would have visited a newborn in a hospital nursery, we call those little cribs bassinets, you know. So we place the baby in a bassinet. And I always um, request the nurses that, we must place the twins together in the same bassinet because they tend to do much better if they are placed together. And I always tell the nurse that these babies were together for that period of nine months um, where they were they were feeling each other all the time and you know they were thinking each other. Now that they delivered, if we separate them, they that 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 psychological distancing that we are creating, and I find that they tend to be far more settled and calmer when they are together. And this is my own personal observation. So there has to be some form of, of uh, bonding between these twins. In, in, in baby twins, if one twin lost you know, uh, the sibling, it doesn't really have an effect on them for the rest of their life, from what I've noticed. But I think if they were older twins that actually got to know each other, then yes, there's definitely some form of, of uh, connection that, uh, that that remains for the rest of the remaining uh, twins' lives. Uh, but definitely in the newborn period, I think there's definitely some form of connection between these twins because keeping them together, nursing them together, makes a huge difference. 
You know, Doctor, I get invited to uh, many schools to come and uh, give a, motiv- a motivational talk or sometimes, uh, you know, especially these preschoolers to uh, come and do a braai and to interact with kids. And what I find fascinating, Nelly, you know, every year when I go through that, there's always be a set of twins in a class. And it's, you know, they each, the, the twins are so unique. And in most cases, I find out, you know, when you look at them and you interact with them, they're always on the lookout for each other. I don't know if you have uh, noticed that, but they're always looking, you know, what the other one will say and you know beforehand they will smile or maybe the other one feels uh, unhappy they feel unhappy uh, you know that closeness uh, doctor have you noticed and i'm sure you, you you have seen that all the time now i actually have i have to agree with you brother shafa the only thing is i don't have any scientific explanation for that uh, except that it's, it's a psychological bonding between them uh, but there definitely is i've noticed that as well quite correctly the way you've described it now, doctor, I want to get into this uh, trauma, you know, especially kids. If you see so much of child abuse in this country, you see kids are being abandoned. Newly born babies are put in, into, uh, you know, thrown away, literally in, in bin bags and so forth. And, you know, in this country, you, you're finding a lot of young kids uh, being, uh, you know, their trauma for them, uh, you know, like uh, things like the wounds uh, inflicted upon a child and, uh, you know, abuse on children. And often the injury is, uh, you know, it's, it's unreal. This masoom baby hardly has any, you know, muscle tone or nothing on it. And they've been inflicted uh, with the wounds and uh, sometimes purposefully people, uh, the parents uh, have succumbed to drugs or they have this uh, stress and the trauma the parents go through, but they take it out on an innocent masoom baby. Talk to us about the scenario that has engulfed this country, violence from, uh, you know, it seems like in this country, from the cradle to the grave. What's your experience, uh, doctor? Yeah, I think that's that's a, a very common problem. And in fact, just as sad as death is, or the death of a child, I think child abuse and child neglect is 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 the second saddest thing that I, I come across. And for the sake of the listeners, you know, child abuse, can be in different forms. Um, it can be in the form of physical abuse. It can be in the form of emotional abuse. It can be in the form of sexual abuse, or it can be in the form of just child neglect. And that can be further broken down. You know, child neglect can be not keeping your children clean, not feeding your children well, um, not uh, educating your children. So. The, uh, not taking them for their regular medical care. So those are forms of child neglect. Child abuse, there was a study done in, a, in around 2016 in South Africa where they found, and it's shocking, that almost 40% of our pediatric population, our children, have experienced some form of abuse in their life. I mean, that's almost half uh, of our entire, uh, uh, you know, uh, child uh, pediatric population of all our children that have been exposed to some form of abuse or neglect. And it, 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 it's shocking, it's scary, it's frightening. And the reason is it's just it's a huge social problem that we are faced with. And, you know, the causes are multifactorial. There's so many reasons. I mean, you know, I'll give you a simple example of, of you know, child abuse for, with regard to physical abuse. So, Bruising of a child, when you see a child with multiple bruises, unexplained bruises, bruises uh, with instruments, then that immediately makes us wonder and think, could this be child abuse? You know, when a parent or a caregiver brings a child to us with those type of bruises or delayed presentation, you know, 
if a child was injured five days ago, a, a cut or something that obviously requires stitches or whatever, and they come five days later, you, that, is, that is a form of child neglect. Why was the child left for so long? Is there some sort of a problem? What were the circumstances around which the child, you know, got that type of an injury? And sometimes you see children with cigarette burns where they were burned deliberately. Uh, children that are exposed to domestic violence where either the father is abusing the mother or there's some form of domestic violence or abuse or drug addiction or alcohol abuse in the house. And children exposed to this, that is also a form of, of child abuse because that emotionally affects the children and it affects, you know, the, the, the quality of their life. It affects their school performance. It affects their self-esteem. It, it causes long-term damage to these children. So child abuse is a, is a very big problem. And it's something that, that requires, you know, input from all different um, sectors of society. So you need government to introduce laws to protect children. We need our like, Islamic organizations, our, our ulama, the imams of our masajid to, to assist in educating people, like radio stations, you know, educating people about the ills of child abuse, the causes of child abuse, and how we can rectify. But I think, you know, the, the best laws for, for us as Muslims, obviously, is the Quran, and that is the best constitution. And if we follow the laws of the Quran, then we shouldn't really actually be seeing any child abuse at all because then there, there shouldn't be any form of child neglect. There shouldn't be any form of violence in the house. You know, children should be loved and cared for. If we follow the teachings of our beloved Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa I mean, he had extreme love for children. You know, it, it, it's amazing when we read about it. Just the other day I had come across uh, something that I was, I was browsing to and where they were talking about our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa love for children. You know, and how he would play with them, how he would love them, how he would hug them. You know, so if we follow the, the teachings of the Quran and the Sunnah of our Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, then we shouldn't even be discussing a problem like child abuse because it shouldn't exist. So I think the first thing is we should all try to become better Muslims, you know, for those of us who are Muslims. And, you know, then it's obviously addressing the causes and addressing the ills and uh, you know, the consequences of, of child abuse and child neglect. Uh, no, the, sometimes, sometimes it's because the parents have some psychological problems. Sometimes they were abused as children. Some of them were raped as children. And those things have long-term effects. And then it does those, those, you know, effects get carried on throughout their lives. And then it affects their children. So it becomes quite a big problem. Yeah, and Doctor, you know, I, I, the thoughts are going through my mind, and you talk about uh, looking at uh, statistics. You know, I do a breakfast show in the morning, and uh, I was talking to uh, the member of parliament, and he was, he was telling me uh, something like 60% of teenagers are getting pregnant in this country, and there are so many young mother, uh, mothers in this country. Uh, the fathers are not known, and there is no single parenting, and these mothers, most of them are, uh, you know, uh, uh, alcoholics and, uh, you know, substance abusers and uh, so forth. And there's a masum child coming into the dunya uh, with a disadvantage. And, you know, you talk about a pediatrician, um, alhamdulillah, you uh, a pedigreed one. And, uh, you know, how available are pediatricians in, uh, you know, government hospitals? And because uh, we know for a fact uh, that these uh, government hospitals have uh, gone pear-shaped. And, uh, you know, what do you do then? Uh, do we have enough uh, pediatricians in, in this country? Are we running uh, short of them and so forth? Uh, talk to us, doctor. So teenage pregnancy is a big problem because 
Firstly, the mother is not psychologically prepared to to be a mother, you know. And then her, her body is physically too young to carry a pregnancy, to deliver a baby. I mean, I'm talking like the 13 and 14-year-old, which we do see. We see kids as young as 13 and 14-year-olds coming to deliver a baby. Uh, fortunately, in the private sector, it's not that common, but I think not long ago, about two weeks ago, we had a 14-year-old girl that delivered a baby. Um, it, it's a big problem because, obviously, firstly, it tells us that these little children were left unsupervised, were left unattended, and obviously they were abused by somebody because it can never be consensual at that age, you know. I mean, what does that child understand? So, you know, to me, it was a form of, it is a form of child abuse when a 13-year-old or 14-year-old comes uh, pregnant. Uh, you know, obviously, we didn't, or we as society, not just the parents or the family or the neighbors, but I think as a society, we failed that child. Uh, we failed to properly educate the child. We failed to properly protect the child. That child then becomes exposed to a whole lot of sexually transmitted infections, you know, like HIV, because at that young age, if they are already engaging in such risky behavior, then they're not going to be restricted to only one person, and they expose themselves to a whole lot of sexually transmitted infections. They expose the unborn baby to those kinds of infections as well. So obviously these, these, these children, which is what I still call them, they, they require special care, special uh, support. You know, obviously during the pregnancy, in Islam, an abortion is forbidden in a case like that, and Obviously, you allow the pregnancy to carry on, but you've got to take care of this, this young mother and, and guide her through the whole process. In terms of pediatricians, you know, there's a shortage of doctors, both in the, in, the, in the public sector mainly and in the private sector as well. I mean, if you try picking up the phone and getting an appointment with the doctors, sometimes they might tell you the next available appointment is in two weeks' time or in three weeks' time, and you wonder, but how do I wait so long, you know, if my child is sick today? So I think there is a shortage of doctors in both the private and the public sectors. So one advantage of the private sector that people have, and unfortunately it's sad, you know, you've got to have money to, to access the private sector. But, you know, the advantages of private sector, number one, is you can choose your doctor. And number two is you get direct access to a specialist. In the government sector, it's very different, and that relates to the question that you asked, how easy it is to to access pediatricians in the public sector, it's actually quite difficult because in the public sector, firstly, there is an even bigger shortage of pediatricians. Um, in fact, I'm just trying to think of the stats, but the last time I looked at it, but that was a few years ago, I think they said 80% of South Africa's pediatricians are in private practice and 20% are in the public sector. And that, that's actually quite scary because 80% of the pediatricians are serving about 10% of the population, because only about 10% of our population has access to private health care. And 20% of the pediatricians are serving about 90% of the population. So there's a huge discrepancy between the two. Now, to expect 10 or 20, I mean, 20% of, of pediatricians to serve 90% of the population is almost impossible. You know, to expect them to see every child. So how it works in the government sector is the hierarchy of doctors. You first get exposed to the most junior doctor in the system, which is the intern, the the doctor who's just qualified the year before that. So they're the most junior one. They're obviously still learning. They're still training. We all were there once upon a time. And they would usually be your first line of contact with the healthcare system in terms of seeing a doctor. And then they would then 
you know, hand you over to a medical officer and then they would hand you over to a registrar who's a doctor who's becoming a specialist. And then only would you get to be seen by by the specialist or the pediatrician, which uh, which, which which would take time. And, and not everybody gets to see the specialist. It's only the complicated cases that are admitted to a hospital that would that would see a specialist. So if you're not admitted, then you're not going to see a specialist. You're going to see a more junior doctor. So the chances of seeing a, a specialist pediatrician in in, pub, in the public sector is 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 low because there's a there's a strict referral system that is required, and you have to go through the whole chain of doctors before you can reach the level of a specialist. Unlike people in the private sector, where you get direct access to a specialist. Yeah, I'm looking at a question from my sister Razia, and she says, Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Ridwan Omar and Shafat. Really beautiful show indeed. Jazakallah for that, Razia. She says, Ya Allah, I'm appalled. I'm, I'm, I'm appalled. She says it twice. And how can a 11 year, 12 year old be abused to such trauma? Uh, uh, she says, uh, birth is such a wonderful thing, and birth is a trauma for these children, and those that are perpetrating this should be brought to, brought to book. I want to know from uh, Dr. Ridwan Umar, which group is uh, culpable to this type of atrocity on a masum young girl? Uh, perhaps, uh, I think Razia means, uh, you know, you look at our de- demographics, or you look at the population-wise, and is it coming more from our African brothers, uh, our uh, sisters, uh, uh, Dr. Ridwan Umar? Yeah, I think Sister Razia is 100% right in the way she described, you know, that that uh, that whole process. And these little children, you know, to see them, uh, birth is supposed to be such a joyous occasion. And you see a little child in labor ward delivering a baby. It's quite scary. But the sad truth is it's actually happening and we see it. They see it more in the public sector with the younger kids. The perpetrators often, I mean, like I was telling you about two weeks ago, I had a 14-year-old that delivered a baby, and I asked her, you know, she's in grade eight or something like that. And so I asked her, uh, who is the father of your child? Um, and so she told me, no, he's uh, somebody who lives nearby. And so I asked, well, how old is he? You know, he's 20 years old. So obviously he 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 found a, a, a very um, easy target, you know, uh, uh, to uh, to his his... His, his desires on and obviously impregnated her and then they know it to be found after that. So it obviously becomes the grandmother's responsibility. But like I was telling earlier on, you know, it, it's a... Okay, that person can be reported. Fortunately, the laws in South Africa, you know, it protects these people because children now can can give consent to participating in this type of activities from the tribe and about It's not considered rape. So that, that 13 and 14-year-old Legally, she's entitled to, to, to what we would call a, a consent to this type of a relationship. It's, it's actually something that, that needs to be addressed, you know, from the root causes. Uh, it's about our morals, our ethics. The demographics of this is most commonly seen in, uh, in the black population. And the reason for that, obviously, is because of their lifestyle, their level of education, their level of poverty, their upbringing. Um, I think it's it's a combination of factors that result in such young pregnancies in that particular age group. When I used to work at RK Khan Hospital, which is in a, well, formerly Indian area, 
We used to see it in, in Indian patients as well. In fact, I used to see a lot of cases of Hindu-Muslim uh, relationships, young unmarried couples still going to school, delivering uh, or having babies, and then you get all the drama because the nani is there and then the dad is there and then the one is Hindu and one is Muslim. and you know. But now that, that I'm in private, I'm not exposed to those kind of situations. But it does happen even in the, in the Indian population, which I've seen, but predominantly now, it's, it's more in the black population. The same thing with abandoned babies. Mostly, we find abandoned babies in the black population, and it all results or stems from poverty. You know, they are they are the most impoverished of all our uh, uh, groups in South Africa, and obviously the township lifestyle. You know, the the lack of education, the lack of services in the township lack of transport, lack of schools, lack of ability to attend schools, all those things play a role and, and result in these type of social ills. So the solution is not just going and catching that one 20-year-old guy who impregnated a 13-year-old girl and put him behind bars, you know. That's not going to solve the problem because tomorrow there's another 14-year-old or 13-year-old that's going to come uh, pregnant. It, it, it's about us as a society you know, getting together and, and addressing. And it's not easy to do. It, it requires a lot of work from all the different sectors of society. Government needs to come in as well. I mean, you've got to uplift the lives of the people to solve these type of ills. And that requires, you know, it requires financing, it requires planning, it requires uh, good uh, teamwork. In fact, Brother Shafat, your good friend and my good friend, Dr. Imran Kika, he's the the education for KwaZulu Natal, we need to get him involved. Maybe he can answer this question for us better. <laughs> what are they doing to educate? You know, everything drops down to education as well. I think if we educate people properly from a young age about morals and ethics and about life skills and how to know when you are in a situation that makes you feel unsafe, makes you feel uncomfortable, then maybe these young girls won't fall prey to these people. So I think it's, 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 it's so, so the, the whole approach is so uh, multidisciplinary, you know. You need so many different types of people involved in the whole thing. It's, it's, yeah, you're absolutely right. And you talk about uh, Dr. Imran Kika, he's hands-on, uh, many things happening at schools, and all this drama is taking place at schools also. Yeah. And as you said, uh, you know, we need to get him and uh, talk about this issue. But uh, yeah. I tell you, you're, you're, you're really keeping... You know, sometimes we need to look at the culture of the people. You know, uh, the, the, the black popu uh, population, they have a special uh, culture where, you know, uh, perhaps they allow things like this. And uh, sometimes, you know, we may be, be trying, uh, you know, we be, be, be judging them with our... Uh, maybe with our value uh, system, and then they tell you, you know, you're being uh, you're being prejudiced towards me because this is my culture. How do you react then, uh, doctor? Yeah, that's true. It's a very sensitive thing, and we have to be very, very careful about how we approach them because, you know, sometimes it can be perceived as racism, and that's a very good point that you made, Brother Shafat. You know, we have to we have to take into consideration that different religions, different cultures, different race groups have different norms. You know, and what might be normal to some people might be totally abnormal to others. I mean, in an Indian community to have a 13-year-old pregnant girl might Absolutely. be the most devastating thing they face with. Whereas in the black culture, although initially they'll, they'll, they'll take it with some disbelief and anger, but eventually they accept it as, you know, this is, this is the life in the township. So we've got to be very sensitive about it. I also, especially when I deal with these little girls, I mean, to be honest, it hurts a little, you know, because this could have been my own daughter, you know. 
in this situation. Mm. No father wants to see their young daughter in a maternity ward at that age, you know. Uh, but obviously, we have to be very sensitive to their beliefs, to their culture, to their value system. So we don't we don't insult, we don't criticize, we don't embarrass. We've got to approach them with respect. They are who they are, and the situation is what we are in. So we've got to... We got to we got to be very dignified and respectful about how we handle the situation without being prejudiced, without being judgmental on anybody. Absolutely, and I'm glad that we cleared that up. And uh, you know, we need to be very careful, especially on uh, you know when you look at the Islamic radio. Before we said it's a community radio station, and then you know the beauty of our broadcasting now, Doctor Ridwan Umar, is it goes through the four corners of the globe. And you on this uh, medical file, your podcast can be recalled any moment. And Alhamdulillah, you know, being uh, having a powerful captain like Mufti A.K. Hussein, uh, Dhamad Barakatum, I mean, we've got a phenomenal uh, listenership. And you, this evening, were absolutely, mashallah, uh, I feel like hugging you, Doc. Yeah, come closer to me. <laughs> Let's give you a nice, tight hug <laughs> for doing a brilliant, brilliant show. And uh, perhaps, uh, you know, rounding up and your, your parting words uh, this evening, uh, Dr. Ridwan Umar. Yeah, it's always always a challenge to think how to round up. But since our, the, the focus of our topic was the loss of a, a child, that we should always just remember what Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, that to Allah we belong and to Him we shall return. I think it's also important to to obey His Quranic injunction that during that time, you know, Allah Ta'ala says, إِنَّ Allah مَسْتَابِرِينَ Allah is with those who patiently persevere. And the best way to do that is through salah. It's not easy. I understand. I know the pain. I feel the pain for parents when I see them go through it. It's, it's really something very difficult. And, uh, and no words can bring comfort to a parent who's lost their child. But for those parents out there, I want you to know that, that your reward for that loss, as long as you make sabr and salah and shukar to Allah, and you continue to praise him, there will be a very, very special place for you in the Akhirat, and you should look forward to that. The reward is, is in my opinion, you know, and our, our learned ulama will be able to expand further on it, but I would just say the reward is immeasurable, and, and that's what we should look forward to. Absolutely, Doctor, and it was, uh, as I said, a beautiful evening in your company. You really conscientized us, you educated us, and uh, information, you gave us sources of our reference and so forth. Allah keep you blessed, Allah keep you happy, and Allah give you that uh, power and strength to serve uh, humanity in a manner that pleases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala most. Uh, Doctor, hope to meet you soon, and inshallah, you have a blessed and a mashallah evening ahead. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yes, people, keep it locked on to Marcus Sahaba, the voice of the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan. And inshallah, when we get back, I will be in the pertinent, uh, punctuated uh, segments. And inshallah, Sheikh Shoaib Maida and our very own Maulana Salim Karim are on standby. Let's go for the Isha Azan.